came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, Jason. Hello, Ksenia. How are you? I'm good. Hello, everyone. I'm going to start in a truly British manner today and just complain that it's really hot in the UK. Oh, I'm sorry. It is so hot, but it's summer, so you know, we're just going to embrace it. Also, excellent color code coordination, as always. I mean, my nails suit your t-shirt. You know, so, oh. I do know the t-shirt, yeah, we coordinated it. The usual. We're really good at that, right? Like one thing we're good at is color coordination. Anyway, but that perhaps might be a different season, right? Where we talk about fashion and color coordination. Season 20. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> season 20. I'm sure you're all really looking forward After to we run out of ideas, on. we'll move on to fashion. Fashion and disasters. <laughs> fashion and disasters. That sounds, actually sounds fun. Might be a good paper in that, right? Maybe. But this is not what we're going to talk about today, right? So welcome everyone to the third episode of season seven. And thank you again so much for joining us. And we really hope you, you've been enjoying the season very much because we certainly, it's been, I'm just loving discussing books. What can be better, right? Yeah, a lot of reading. We have been asking everybody to get involved and to read along with us the books that were also voted for collectively by by the audience and we're also talking to disaster authors as well as the other books that we've been reading so we hope you've been enjoying the conversation so far we're going to be coming to you right through september with with more discussions about books and it's kind of our thing right so oh, yeah. um, talking of books today we have an author <laughs> of another book that we've enjoyed although it's not about theory which a lot of our books are about it's certainly about practice and so we're decided, delighted to have Professor Lucy Easthope with us today. Lucy is a professor in practice of risk and hazards at the University of Durham and is a fellow in mass fatalities and pandemics at the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath. She's also the UK's leading authority on recovering from disaster and has been an advisor on the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, the 7-7 bombings in London, the Grenfell fire, and of course, COVID-19 pandemic. And so in keeping with our theme of books this season, Lucy is author of the book, When the Dust Settles, which has been, and we've brought some copies along. So welcome to Disasters Deconstructed, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Super excited to talk to you. And we will talk a lot about your book. You know, I loved it. I literally just spent an afternoon reading it. I was like, right, everybody go away. This is great. <laughs> Um, but we, we will come back to this. Um, I want to start with a kind of slightly different question, right? The kind of the book and your career is really about crisis. And in this season, we particularly want to unpack and talk about the relationship between crisis and critique. And so I wonder, what does the concept of crisis mean to you? Yeah, and it was really something I wrestled with because there are so many great definitions. And as you say, this isn't a theory book. And I had spent 
you know, I spent my life living two worlds, always in two different worlds. So I'm a responder and I'm often called when a disaster happens of some form. And I'm also an academic. So I had the two lives. So what did these things mean was hugely important to me. And then I was very keen to not get into, into theory. And in fact, my, you know, kind of editorial brief was to not go there. And how did you define these things and one of the things that fascinates me is that pretty much it's been a marker through the whole of my career is people trying to grade uh, different types of catastrophe and I actually think that is probably one of our one of our biggest difficulties now is giving things you know giving things the right classification and be, and almost becoming almost a parody we lose the event that we're actually dealing with so i often call it out for example on twitter you know we had a declaration of a of a critical incident in the nhs national health service last week and I, you know, very sort of gently sort of tweeted, what's that then? <laughs> like, where are you? What's the definition of that one? And we tie ourselves up in knots in definitions. Mm. So I think we're in a, we're a really interesting place. And I just went with the D word. I was just all about the disaster. I just reclaimed it. I very early on reclaimed it with the pandemic. I remember, you know, I'm saying in the book, I was told off very early on that this was not the D word. And I was arguing back that it certainly was. And I think we would do ourselves some favours if we simplified, if we simplified down. But there is an acuteness to crisis, I think, that what we see in disaster is this just longevity and this kind of chronic, the chronic pain. So I was, yeah, I was really keen in the book to not tie mm. myself up in the theoretical knots. Because I think particularly as a student of disaster studies, you can spend years just feeling like you're using the wrong terminology. And that was that's can be really alienating, I think, to practitioners. It's really interesting because indeed, you know, I mean, I don't know how many hours, if not days of my life, I spend in conferences and rooms arguing about resilience, right? There is always somebody. There is that person in the room said, So how yeah. do you define resilience? Yeah. And then you're just yeah. like, Oh, please can I go home now? And it's very often that actually we hear from kind of more technical, if you wish, disciplines, right? Or sort of natural sciences, as well as practitioners. And, but we want that box, right? Because once you have the box, it's kind of, it's easy to play within yeah. it. So how do yeah. we kind of reconcile that? How do we stop defining? And like, where do we start yeah. defining? I think one of the pain, the most painful ones for me is going to conference after conference that was trying to define vulnerability and then getting to the situation in London in 2017, where you have a fire and people who we knew would be at risk from the 2007 floods when we began a journey about defining vulnerable people at home. And we had spent the intervening decade defining what we meant, but not actually assisting the people mm. involved. And, you know, I also think that understandably in the world at the moment, the critique moves very quickly. So I've learned a huge amount by being on social media. I'm much more careful in a way about language. You know, I've learned how much nurses and healthcare workers and social workers have come to hate the word resilience. <laughs> like I would not anyway, because they're, they're being told like, don't have a pay rise, power through, be resilient. In fact, come to some resilience training. And so the hatred of certain words, the use, for example, in a lot of the UK definitions of recovery, was around regeneration, which was a hugely mm. toxic word after the Grenfell fire. So actually for me, everything I've ever known about language in disaster, I have challenged because I think 
our language has grown from our militaristic and our very masculine roots, our civil defence roots, our nuclear roots. And it, 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 as with so many other sort of social and anthropological areas, it is very timely to deconstruct the language of our work. And I, I really enjoy that. And I know you talk a lot about great books. And I made this bookshelf, actually, that was just, it's not, in fact, I bought two copies because there's some in my office as well. But these are books that inspire me and answer my questions. And Sam Montano's book, which I'm sure you either have talked about or will talk about. For me, that was like, mic drop. She's done the definitions. Now we do the helping. <laughs> because we yeah. just kind of torn ourselves apart, both sides of the Atlantic on definitions for years. I think the other thing that my book really drives home, which is very much a message throughout disaster literature, is it the initial big bang that's the crisis? Or is it the like the, the way it changes your life? It ebbs, it flows, it's chronic. Mm. And also the fact that these things are so big and so memorable that any attempt to kind of box them in is very, very difficult. And I'm a big fan of getting the engineers and getting the natural scientists over to us and learning together, but also really challenging some of this language now, I think. Yeah, I really love your insights there about, about language and some of the problematic issues that are, arise. I think sometimes it just distracts us as well from the real issues that are going on and like the risks that people are dealing with in their lives. And when outsiders are kind of labeling and defining you, that becomes a problem in itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you about your book, Lucy, When the Dust Settles. It was such a personal tech and throughout it, you're focusing a lot on the personal and human aspect of a disaster. and you're contrasting that with the anti-human responses we often see. And you use the UK government's response to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic as an example of this. So I want to ask you, what is the role of uh, the I in your work? Oh, I love that question, Jason. Thank you ever so much. And there's a couple of things. I mean, you're absolutely right. You had to know me as a human to, to understand why the responses felt so anti-human. Mm. But also you had to you know i knew that I was writing a book when people were placing huge amounts of faith in technical solutions and you know as i make very clear in the book the kind of james bond type res response and they got they get humans in cardigans and who are a bit hot and don't cope well in <laughs> warm weather and who are very caring but also easily distracted by biscuits you know it was it, they needed to get that there was humans so that they could then understand what we brought and then they could understand what we had lost so the conversations early on with the book I knew I couldn't write a technical book because other people do it so much better. And by the time I'd written it and procrastinated for years, there would be better ones out. And I was so pleased because last year, a slew of amazing books came out and absolutely proved my point on the theoretical side. So you had to get to know me to understand why it was important. And the other thing that I really wanted to bring out into the light was when you're at a disaster conference, like you go in and it's very sensible and you do quite a lot of quarantine. And then in the corridors, that was where you would learn why people did it. So they had a backstory. They'd worked in after Katrina or they'd they'd worked in refugee policy or they were flooded as a child. Or in my case, several of my friends, you know, I, I start the book with being a child very profoundly activated by the Hillsborough disaster. And several of my friends are also emergency planners. So what you would find was you would learn about the eye outside the main conference room. And in the conference room, you kind of leave that part of you there. And I think 
in memoir and in in kind of professional what they call professional you could sort of bring into that this is why I do it and also that then gave me a thread all the way through where I'm not beating anybody for getting this wrong it's not a it's not a hugely political book as I say you know I've always said I don't have big politics I have big principles is that you kind of take the reader with you and they're kind of rooting for emergency planning or you know as we call it in the UK they're kind of rooting for the planners and that coupled with what I think we've been able to do on social media during the pandemic was really important to me because if people thought that this was going to be solved by robots and robotic kind of great military answers, then they weren't you know, cheering for the disaster planners who are mums and dads and brothers and sisters who, you know, take an on-call rotor and get up at three o'clock in the morning. One of the great things about social media is, that, I mean, I already had friends in America and Australia, but now you follow them as followers on Twitter and you think, oh God, but they've had a difficult night. You know, they've been up at 5am for a flood in Kentucky or whatever. And so you, I think we took in the book, you, 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 we took emergency planning and gave it a very real sense and a very real face. The other thing was I wanted people to know that I knew it from a number of sides. So I'd been a patient. I'd been a patient's wife. I'd been almost at a disaster. I'd been on a train when, you know, you would assume I'd be the responder, but actually I was hustled into the reception center. So that when I'm really looking at things, I'm not just going as a responder, I expect to do this, but oh, how does it feel like to be a human? And that's going to be the big test for disaster management going forward. Alongside deconstructing our lens, it's going to be about deconstructing our humanity. And I think the big, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like the climate debate is starting to really move towards a place of mitigations, anticipatory action, and care of the fellow human wherever they are in the world. And the disaster management world has not always stood arm to arm with its humanitarian brethren. You know, we have you know, so international aid, international humanitarianism has been different. And I think there's a there's an era coming where the heart in this is going to be very important again. And I just, you know, I also I enjoyed writing it. You know, I enjoyed telling those. And they there was subtext. There was women in emergency planning, which is a huge part of the book and and sort of what it takes to just keep going. So I, I hope that it captured a few of those things and it sort of started a bit of a debate, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it just made me think as well about like how many people with principles and vision and humanity are involved in a process that somehow becomes anti-human, you know, and, and in, in kind of policies and in post-disaster actions by by the government in a lot of cases that are kind of ignoring people's humanity. And I just wonder, how do we roll that back? How do we tap into like the mutual aid networks that emerge after disaster, which is where I think we see a lot of the greatest show of solidarity is from people who are affected and not affected for each other. You know, how, like, how, what have you seen that, that kind of indicates hope in, in, in communities you know, in because I think sometimes there's like incentives to government to have a militaristic response to maintain control because a disaster is also a site of like possibility for change. And sometimes the government doesn't actually want change. They want to show their control. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but um, that's where that's what I was thinking when you were speaking there. Yeah, that's absolutely how I feel. And there's so much in there, you know, the book is ultimately a hopeful book. 
Um, it's also a don't sweat, don't sweat some of it. <laughs> not don't sweat the small stuff because not it's small stuff, but like, like we, we've just got to keep going, guys. Like we're in permanent mm. crisis. This is just going to keep coming. You look after your fellow man and woman. You just keep going. Um, there's very much you know, a very definite sense of hope within the book. I, I really do feel that. And I think the other thing that, that you're absolutely right about is the kind of one of the things that really, oh, am I, have I got a problem with my sound? I can see in the chat some people are We can hear you. That's really strange. Okay. One thing okay. that I, let me know if there's anything you need me to do there. One thing I think with the anti-human, that's a very important part of the book as well. And certainly my experience is that in disaster response, there is a stripping away of what it is to be human. And that is very much considered a weakness to bring the kind of humanity into a discussion. You know, the tweets sometimes, the insults that are used about that, you know, Lucy, get out of the weeds. <laughs> and the weeds means people issues. Like we, we haven't got any loos here. We haven't got any showers. People haven't got any food. Oh, Lucy, you're in the weeds. This is the strategic meeting. So the human is often ripped very quickly out of the emergency. And that, you know, success in an emergency, even in the most humanitarian governments, is still measured by clean streets, happy people. And the nicest politicians, the politicians with the biggest hearts, still struggle with me mm. saying, you're going to need to leave that a bit longer. They, the People are angry, they're not there, they're not ready. I think the other challenge that you see with my work in recovery is I am actually quite a big note of caution around goodwill. <laughs> and sometimes, like, I'm I'm thrilled when I see community action, but I'm also very wary sometimes because of things like the, the Red Cross recovery graph that we don't over overestimate community goodwill. For me, you know, the things that bring me hope are when you still see an organisation like a great charity that I support in North London that's still going after five years, still harnessing local support, still supporting children after the Grenfell disaster. You, th those kind of enduring community actions. There is also, I think, you know, one of the things is that we mustn't be sad when the honeymoon phase goes. So we're caught up in a catastrophe, either as responders or as survivors, and we want to hug the person next to us. And, mm. you know, it's okay when that feeling goes. So what happened after the first lockdown in the pandemic here in the UK was that, you know, lots of people in government and in, in civil service wanted to sort of bring that back. The lack of humanitarian action was seen as somehow the public had started to kind of disintegrate or fail which is what the recovery guidance teaches us and I was like that's not a failure that's the next stage so actually one of the things I'm more wary of is when the state over overuses community action and allows the community to do the work of the state because sometimes that's just you know, basically making volunteers do stuff for free that the state should be providing so that when i talk about being a disaster wild card those are sometimes the sorts of things that i'm saying is like hang on a minute you're awfully relying here on community goodwill for a long time we don't always see that but that's the perfect neoliberalism, right? Kind of pretend that it's good and then <laughs> gradually disseminate all the responsibilities. And, and we'll talk a, a little bit more about power in a second. But I want to kind of go back to, to, you know, to I in your story, to your personal place. I guess very often, well, as academics, but also as kind of emergency practitioners, right? Disaster practitioners, we're told that there is no place for emotion. You've got to be objective, right? You're a scientist. <laughs> Why do you have emotion? Please don't. And Jason and I, 
spend a lot of time talking about vulnerability kind of as our strength, right? And but we don't know, we're not expected to show vulnerability. We're, we're kind of, we, we're supposed to be invulnerable, right? Or resilient, whatever we, did we, want, we want to be. And you were so vulnerable in your book, you know, in like, and I mean it in the kind of in that strength way, right? That you showed vulnerability and how you kind of harnessed it, I guess, to, to do what you do. Was it difficult for you? I'm, yeah, well, I'm great at personal questions, right? Like, <laughs> was it difficult for you to write about vulnerability? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, but I felt like the reader deserved that. You know, the, that kind of, if you're going to be rooting for me in the field, you've got to know me. The other thing was, you know, and one of the areas that I write about is miscarriages, is that the kind of, and I was really pleased that some of the reviews picked this up and some of the conversations that I've had with people like Rowan Williams, the retired Archbishop of Canterbury, he did a review and we've done a, a podcast since, where this is, these are big theological philosophical questions raised in disaster and i had always made i'd always made parallels so a lot of my work is with the bodies of disaster it's with the dead of disaster it's with the personal effects it's with decisions about a dna strategy and i start the book with something like you know decisions made at 9 11 i've got no say in those i'm just a bystander working in the uk on the response but they're getting me thinking so for me, you know, it felt right to to bring in reasons why I'd had the chance to reflect on that. And, you know, every day, so one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is my relationship with personal effects and, and the, the items of ourself, the magpie hoard. And every day I think about what we have on us, what is important to us. And the personal effects, I'd taken a lot of abuse over the years for raising that in disaster strategic coordination groups very early on, you know, really hard and really misogynistic, really, that this was something that a woman would be concerned with, but not a man. And so, you know, it felt important to me to be able to sort of dance about and you know, show the subject from different angles. What I would say to people, because I've had a lot of interest, and I hope there's people watching with interest who would like to write this way. I was greatly assisted by my PhD, which was at the School of Medicine in Lancaster, where I was very beautifully and brilliantly supervised in ethnography. And of course, there's very intimate autoethnography. And I'm a huge champion of the qualitative research in disaster studies and the autoethnography and placing yourself in the study. And one thing, I didn't really get into it actually in either book. So my academic book is The Recovery Myth and my new book is When the Dust Settles. But there was a chapter that never made it into recovery in the recovery myth in the methodology. And actually it was about being pregnant for most of the time that I was doing the ethnography. <laughs> and the effect that had on the disaster research. You know, yes, you're mm. exhausted people would want to sort of offer you a chair. And sometimes I felt like I'm getting loads of great data here and loads of artifacts and people are inviting me to stuff. But actually part of what's getting me through the door is that people are like, oh, is she pregnant? And oh, you know, I'll keep an eye, I'll look after it. And then of course, you know, what you read in the book is, there's, there's sort of, I'm not always pregnant, I lose the babies. And you could see the mm. flooded women. It was a Monday club where communities were coming together on a Monday and they had realized, and several of, well, many of them actually, as is often the case with women, had similar journeys. And one of the things when I was presenting my data at disaster workshops was people were like, 
you got so much access in this ethnography. Was it because you were also working for the government? What, what, what was it? And it was actually very autoethnographic point, which was, mm. I think people were connecting with me on a very human level. So I think the other thing is about allowing yourself to be vulnerable. As I get more established in the academic world, I'm very aware of the ethical issues and the ethics committee that goes with disaster research i'm also very conscious i always have been of that disaster affected community <laughs> you know how many covid studies are we seeing i spoke to a children's yeah. today that's being bombarded with requests for covid research studies from very interested social science researchers i really like new zealand's model where they were very careful about the sort of ethnographies that were allowed who's Whose good is this for? You know, ethno mm. ethno ethnographic research can sometimes be kind of a great ego boost. Look at me, I'm helping. We lose our boundaries. It can sort of become, you know, really difficult. So I'm one thing I'd really like to do more on. Obviously, we've got some great texts already, but very interested in sort of um, vulnerability in disaster research in terms of our vulnerability as researchers. Yeah, that's amazing because we're kind of playing in that area now. And it's, I think, one of our favorite topics because we have quite a few EJs in the world. So it's exciting. And of course, you know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned this sort of disaster gold rush, you know, when something happens and everybody just kind of goes for it. And there is a fantastic paper by our friends, Chris Gomez and JC Gaia, talking about that. And I just don't think we talk about that enough. You know, we put it to the side, right? And sort of forget about it. And that, that, that's a really nice segue to my next question, because this question is about power. Right, and that's what we do in research. We sometimes have power that I think maybe we don't even realize we have. I hope you know that this kind of unconscious because if we do realize that we have power, then it kind of becomes quite sinister. But in your book, you really emphasize that disasters are not natural, and as you know, you know, we are kind of great champions. We're on the crusade, I think it's called Scott Knowles, right? Who yeah, labeled yeah. us as such on the crusade for no natural disasters, and you emphasize so strongly. The disasters are indeed political, right? That kind of the thread just goes through, through through the whole book. And yet, after so many years of scholarship, right, of kind of communication and journalism, we see among many disaster scientists still this rejection of the political, right? So we kind of the objective comes to play, and we therefore are expected to treat disasters as just you know a technical challenge, right? That therefore requires a technical solution. And this narrative is even more prominent among the most powerful, right? Among the decision makers. And so how do you navigate it? You know, you see the most powerful and particularly in the UK when the most powerful are perhaps not the people you want to see, right? In power. How do you navigate that kind of political politics and power in a way that you need to make them right? You need to make them make right decisions. Yeah. Oh, it's really difficult. And actually, I mean, I do wonder, <laughs> the book will be coming out in paperback early next year. And it's really interesting because obviously once a book is in paperback, it's even kind of more consumable. Like it can be easily left on the train. You know, at this stage, it's quite kind of meaty and you probably want to put one on your shelf, but it's also available as an audio book. But as a paperback, I do wonder like at that point, because at the moment people are really enjoying it and consuming it. But I am wondering whether at paperback stage, people will go, oh my goodness, like there is some big... There are some big points in here like wow i mean there's been you know it's had a great landing but i'm slightly wondering whether in march i'll suddenly disappear and you won't be able to find me and it'll, you know my, my family will start wearing t-shirts because i'm making some big political points here and i'm being put at book festivals and there's like political journalists political and then like lucy and then when the political journalists have heard me speak they're like 
you wrote what now? <laughs> and I wonder whether, because it's got a really lovely kind of cover and big font, nobody's realized it's a little book written in history. There we go. Turn that into a TikTok. But I do feel like we are making, you know, we are making huge points in Disaster Management all the time about you did this wrong politically, this number of people will die. You know, the disasters are the are kind of the, one of the one of the key interfaces by which you kill your voters, you kill your public by not seeing the event in 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 clear humanitarian loss-based terms. So, you know, we've got a big energy and cost of living crisis. And, you know, somebody was saying on the breakfast television this morning, how dare they see this as, you know, as a point scoring and just something they can win votes for. This is humanitarian. And I think you see in the book, there is a distinction that I make between earlier times in my career where there was, it was never perfect. And I'm very clear on that, but there was an independence about responding to disaster that, that the other thing about no natural disaster is it doesn't necessarily have to be that you see them as a kind of political construct in the way that, you know, you can't influence them in any way. You know, they don't need to be so independent that you can't have a say on how they go. And I don't think the no natural disaster is fully understood yet. And I'm shocked that when I'm in the climate change world and in the, certainly as you say, with journalists and in, certainly in policy writing, you see constantly, probably maybe four times a week in my world, natural disaster or man-made disaster still in, in a line of font. And we have to get past that. We also have to understand the, the issue that I think I'm raising towards the end of the book, which is that you cannot use the disaster to try and kind of move the public to various points and to sort of you know, get you know get your votes you can't these are too big and too severe i think one of the things we have to get to grips with in our field and i'm still working out my feelings on this is how do we sell future risk you know that's where i'm very interested in as well is that we are struggling we do a lot of shouting at people we do a lot of sort of narratives. What did we, what could we, or what should we be doing differently around the storytelling? And I don't know where I am with that yet. I know I've found a personal piece that we made very little traction in the last couple of years before the pandemic in getting the scale of that realized. And not only was that the scale of the likelihood of a pandemic, but also it was the way that a country that's already riddled with social inequality, disparity and a social care crisis will not get through a pandemic mm. well. So I, one of the things that always worries me about disaster briefings that I do is certainly in the last few years, it was no bad news. And I, you can't work in disaster management and not be able to tell bad news. And that, wow. that, that is purely political, surely. And then kind of that, that's fascinating and um, leaves me a little bit speechless. And um, but that that narrative about fear, right, and how we shouldn't scare people is really quite prominent, particularly in the UK. And I remember being really quite shocked. I think it was like ten years ago. You may remember there was a social advert about climate change. You know, where the kind of kid had a nightmare about you know planet basically burning, like bunnies dying, and then it was banned because it was too scary and like. Yeah, man, climate change is scary, right? We should all be scared. Um, yeah. we, we still aren't. Um, and it, it is fascinating how the power in the UK chooses nice fairy tale instead of scary reality. 
Yeah, yeah. And we get our messaging through very biased sources, you know, our news and our print media. And we got, you know, one of the privileges, I think, of academia done well, and it doesn't always get it right, is that, you know, certainly in a good disaster management degree, learning all this stuff, you're critically reflecting. I mean, you guys follow me on Twitter. There's nothing terribly you know, kind of innovative or exciting. I'm just retweeting interesting things. I mean, we worked out probably I've got about 100 years of archives still to go, but it's the privilege of having, you know, a first degree in law. My first degree was in law. It wasn't a first, most I got my earliest degree in law. My second degree is in disaster management. My PhD is in medicine. You have a lot of material that you can go, oh, that's interesting with. And that should be the role of broadcasters. Like you should be able to learn these things in a much more in a much more neutral way. And the thing about the natural disaster is, the sad thing is the minute it's used in a documentary or a supposedly scientific piece, they've lost us, haven't they? For most of us who are passionate about this field, if you use natural disaster for me in a news broadcast, then I know you haven't done your homework. And then that's the rest of it I'm questioning. And that's, we have to get to a place where our science communication and our, you know, our future communication is improved and at a higher level. Yeah, I definitely agree. And my first degree was in architecture. It wasn't a first also. I really like that, Lucy. <laughs> I just like to clarify that they made a marketing video for the book and I, and it makes, and I said my first, I have a first degree, yeah. first degree yeah. and like, yeah. uh, well known in my family, it was not a first. <laughs> That's great. Sorry, mom. I fell in love. I got distracted, but I married him. So it worked out. <laughs> Read the book. It's all in there. No, that's great. On the natural disaster thing, like I, I sometimes, I sometimes think it's a case of, like you said, it's sometimes people showing that they're kind of haven't done their homework, right? Also, it's like, it can be very intentional as we've seen in politics a lot, you know, it can be very in, yeah. an intentional way to say, it's not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. And so in those kind of cases, I mean, I kind of think, well, I prefer that this person is showing, like kind of telling on themselves <laughs> because it allows us to, sh to say, this is what's happening. If they were using the right language, they might find it easier to mask what they're doing. But at the moment it's like, look at what this person is trying to do, <laughs> you know? I think there were a number of own goals even around the pandemic around that, you know, there was this initial description of it as, you know, a very natural event. And, you know, you see that all of the time. I think it's one of the big, it's one of the next big, because we started this conversation with sort of language and definition. It's one of the next big battlefields. I and mean, to see, we still have degree programs that use it here. So, you know, they'll have it as module titles. So we've got some work to do still, I think, around that. Yeah, I, it's definitely like moving to the States has also made me look at it a little bit differently because it's so so broadly adopted by the public mm -hmm. so in those sort of situations i see it more as an opportunity not to correct but to actually explore why somebody like oh that's interesting that you call it that you know and we talked about this on the podcast before but just being in a different context being in a different community makes me look at it differently depending on the context as to whether it's something that needs to be corrected as in I'm peer reviewing a journal article in a disaster journal <laughs> or whether it's an opportunity to explore and maybe change somebody's opinion, right? 
Yeah, and I think especially if it comes with biases. So one of the things, one of the examples I draw out in New Zealand, and this is my own personal experience. Other respondents may have a, a different experience. You know, I was there in the year after the earthquake to do some various workshops. And I think the responders at a senior level had assumed that the idea of the natural disaster would be quite comforting, you know, like, you know, that mother nature had done her thing and therefore mortalities people would be like, well, that's nature, almost like, you know, God's will or, or whatever. And I think it actually led them quite far down a garden path that the harms you see visited and the pain and the betrayal and the focus is irrelevant actually you know and i talk in the book of using the video from the aftermath of the hillsborough disaster at the 20-year memorial service to make the point that you know they were trying to say well ours is a natural disaster you're talking about a socio-technical disaster mm. caused with human factors and politics so yours will come with a kind of additional bucket load of pain you don't get to get a pain-free disaster. And so I think that the natural is a kind of, is a balm, you know, it's sort of trying to soothe something and I'm very, very wary of it. And it was one of the reasons actually, I'm so proud in the book that the middle chapter I was allowed to make about flooding, because what are we all going to see lots more of flooding? And, you know, you're writing a book, people know you've been at fires and plane crashes and bombs. They want, you know, they think they're going to get big bang after big bang in every chapter. And you're like, that middle chapter is going to be about the long drawn out horror that is losing your home to flooding, which so many people will see. And people, you know, people, we love a good hierarchy in the UK. So it was like, well, you've been flooded. That's much less worse than I've had over here. So I'm, you know, I'm putting the sting back in really, I suppose, and not letting people off the hook with that, you know. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And you talked about the about trauma a bit in, in the conversation so far. And I just wanted to come back to this because the disasters are a traumatic experience and not only for people affected, but also for practitioners and researchers that are involved in getting involved in those communities. And so I wanted to ask you about how you bring care to the forefront and what it means to you and how important it is in that context. Oh, absolutely. And I like to think as well that there are people listening who are perhaps starting out in either a disaster career or a related international humanitarian or refugee work. And I was asked a similar question actually at a recent climate conference, and I'm really passionate on a number of things. One is obviously, you know, your own well-being in this work, but also some really fundamental challenges to people who want to either respond or research or do both, which is about asking yourself some difficult questions about your purpose there. You know, one thing is that not all help is good help which in itself is quite a challenge so care for me starts with yourself as a responder and as a researcher but also then you know a kind of boundaried care this is something that i think a lot of the press interviews with the book right, really tried to explore like you know do i just go around giving everybody hugs that's not what we're talking about here you know it's very much about there is a there is an altruism in simply bringing you know the most basic of needs you know, i talk a lot in the books and the interviews around it about the cup of tea making sure these needs are looked after our field as in emergency planning in the uk and sort of disaster management in the us has drawn to it a lot of people who are very procedure focused who are possibly quite neurodivergent who love the order and the checklist. There's a you know, lot of kind of cosplay essentially around gaming and exercising. It's very easy in that 
to to draw out write out the the human in the response so the examples you know one example i give in the book but i give i do this a lot in training is when we exercise for an air disaster generally if we have survivors and walking wounded we'll ask local students to just sort of walk in a row and go and fill in the paperwork that's not what a survivor of a mass disaster looks like you know they may be naked they may have lost their clothes they may have soiled themselves we don't test any of the human to human interaction test even in a pandemic how much there is a need for physical comfort how much people will reach to you what they will need you know they need access to the loo they'll need a cup of tea we don't test that aspect quite often we leap straight to the next stage so for me care is very basic and it also involves us asking a lot of you know what would i want in this situation that comes back to your earlier point about vulnerability that's why you get me in the book at my most broken so i can tell you you know, when I'm in a hospital ward or in some of those other situations I described, I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, functioning disaster planner. I am, you know, I'm a, a woman, I'm a patient. So what do people need in that? I also think that disaster care is very difficult because I've never been involved in one yet that hasn't also had a very bitter, difficult legal aftermath. And that can tend to sort of run counter to care you know that legal aftermath the solicitor's involvement the civil litigation some you know some of the first things i did study in the law degree was what we call the you know dividing disaster survivors into what we call the primary survivor the primary victim and the secondary victim is some horribly legal terminology a lot of the processes strip the person out so one of the things that we can do in disaster response is train ourselves for the inevitable you know, train ourselves for the recovery low and the honeymoon phase low. Train ourselves for the legal aftermath. My training, when you train with me, it's gritty. Like, it's as gritty as the book. <laughs> it's gritty because I don't, it, there's not many care bears in this. You know, you, it, it's really hard work. And, uh, but my most important message always to responders going into it or people starting out in it is about how to look after themselves. And it's your earlier point. It's looking for the glimmers of hope. That's what keeps me going. And also a lot of awareness of your own sense of burnout. Disaster work is incredibly hard on the individual. So I was really lucky that at the start of my career, loads of support on things like psychological burnout, which I constantly deploy on myself and on those around me. I think this is so important. Sorry, Jason, go on. You want to say something? Yeah, no, I was just hoping to link this back maybe to the conversation about mutual aid earlier, because I think sometimes like the charity that we see in the humanitarian action that is given after a, a disaster, like you were saying, Lucy, there's a period where that there is that kind of goes away. And where I think mutual aid is different is that it's usually those networks are in place before the disaster there are people involved in trying oh we lost our stream for a second we're back um, so those um, networks are usually in place before a disaster they're also working on on the root causes of people's vulnerabilities. They're working on with oppressed groups, with people who are treated unjustly in that society. And, but they also respond to the humanitarian needs. They respond to the needs of the disaster impacted, but they don't go away. Those mutual aid, aid networks are there. And that's where I see the connection to real care of the human um, that extends beyond like the disaster impact. It's 
And it responds to the fact that the people most impacted are also impacted day to day before the disaster, right? Mm. And they, and so that's kind of what I was thinking. If you see a connection to those more long-term actions to, to address inequality and injustice in the society. Oh, absolutely. And you will know from where I'll take the book at the end is that this really is a, you know, paradise built from hell, Rebecca Solnit moment. There are chances to really really build back those i mean one of the one of the dangers we have that's the, what the wild card does is you point out the dangers is some of those existing networks are really vulnerable to being exploited now by the big state because the state will yeah. go you worked well we're seeing it with the ukrainian refugee situation you know, you're a great organization let's pound you with more work kind of thing so those organizations and networks become particularly vulnerable in disaster aftermath but this is a real moment for us i think to to review things i'm actually taking a lot of comfort I'm seeing some very fast societal learning. I think the way that people have innovated to be very interested but not overreact to monkeypox, I think the way that we're seeing people with the Ukraine situation, I think even here in the UK with a heat wave, which is not an American heat wave, but it still feels very hot. We've been very interested. We seem to have been very absorbent of the scientific information. But we've also, most importantly, gone, okay, I am looking outwards. And I think we're starting to galvanize for the winter. We know that will be the same. And there was a couple of things that I did around the time of the Ukrainian evacuations, which was very much around tap into existing networks. Don't try and reinvent the wheel. And then the second thing was things like campaigns, like cash not stuff, which was about not donating items. What both of those have taught me is that just with little bits of advice, people are so ready to get us through all of this. And I think that would also apply to some of the climate adaptation work is that with the right info, people are, people, I don't think people were looking to be cosseted. That was the wrong approach sometimes. People in the UK were looking for advice. The book, if anything, like I'm having to manage myself very carefully because the book has shown me how hungry people are for ways to support effectively their communities in what will obviously be a kind of chronic disaster for some time, which is a combination of things in the UK that we're going through all at once. I think it's so important, you know, to kind of to talk about this chronic part of a disaster, right? The kind of the, the constant exposure of suffering um, yeah. and exploitation. And yeah, we, you know, we could talk about this forever. This is another favorite topic of ours. <laughs> Um, I'll keep that for uh, season eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're on for season yeah. eight seasons. You'll be all sick and tired of us, but yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking about vulnerability with us and really bringing the kind of this human aspect to disaster that we really don't hear much about. And thank you for writing your book. Oh, really enjoyed it. And, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having thank me. You. And good luck with it all. Thank you. Thank you. And so for our audience, thank you for joining us today. Our next live stream is next Monday, 15th of August, at a slightly weird time. So it's 5 p.m. Eastern or 10 p.m. British summer time. And we will be joined by our friend JC Gaia, who is back to talk to us about his new book, The Invention of Disaster. So it's going to be pretty fun. And finally, JC doesn't have to get up at 2 a.m. to talk to us, which is a rarity. And we also want all of you to participate in our audience episode, which you know we love. This is my favorite episode, so I'm already getting really excited. And we want to hear your opinion about, we have two questions for you. So tell us what is that one must-read book for a disaster scholar and why that is. And we also want to know whether you read outside of disaster studies. And if so, what areas kind of inspire your scholarship and practice most? You know, what are your favorite 
uh, disaster and non-disaster books. Send us your audio clips to our disastersdeconstructedemail.com, I think. I've probably yeah, given the wrong email. Ooh, yes, I've given the right email. Amazing. And before we finish, let me just remind you that after we've spoken to JC, so from the 31st of August, we're actually going into critical theory again. So Camilo Boana will be back and we will be discussing books. So the four books that you have helped us to choose Ferdinand's Decolonial Ecology, Thinking from the Caribbean World, that's our first book. Max Liboran, Pollution is Colonialism. Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of Indignation. We, of course, could read Freire. And finally, Silvia Federici, Patriarchy of the Wage. So please join us in reading this book and discussing this book. We will be bringing guests to talk about this. And follow us on Twitter or any other podcast apps and enjoy season seven. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.